Hi, this is Jonathan with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast, and I have with me a special guest. Uh, it is Bruce Woolett, and uh, he's a seasoned operator. And as we've been doing for the last couple of episodes, we've been talking to seasoned operators to understand how they got into multifamily investing, uh, what makes them unique, and some lessons learned that they have right now. So, Bruce, I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us how you got involved in multifamily investing. Yeah, Bruce Fallon with Bakerson. I like to tell people I'm, a, I'm an SOB because I grew up in the bakery business, so I'm a son of a baker. <laughs> okay. And hold on. And, uh, you grew up in the bakery business. Who was your, was your dad, your mom uh, a baker? My grandfather started a bakery in Minnesota in the, in the 40s, and then my father took it over in the 70s, and I worked there from uh, 11 years old, worked alongside my dad until I was 26. So that was 15 years I worked at the bakery. So you st are you still baking now or or no? I do it as a hobby, but I'm not real. Um, I'm not active in it uh, in the baker business. But yeah, I still do it as a hobby. We've done my wife and I have done a couple thousand cupcakes a year on average, and I've done dozens of wedding cakes uh, in the last ten years. So um, I do it. It's it's something that I still uh, have a knack for, I guess. There you go, man. Listen, you grew up with the, you've what that third third generation baker. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's, it's been really so fun. So you said you did it all the way up until 26, and, and then what did you do? Well, then I got into uh, executive recruiting or headhunting. Did that two years in Minneapolis and then two years in Chicago. And it was very good income, very lucrative, uh, but the, it wasn't that fun. I didn't enjoy the grueling work. And then there was, um, you know, as soon as you, if you take time off, you're on, you know, it was 100% commission. And yeah. it, like I said, it's good income, but it was, it was grueling. So I said, I'm going to try something different, tried medical sales and in Scottsdale, Arizona for a year. Um, and that was a pretty significant pay cut and it was a good experience, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, working with product, I like service better. So then I uh, started a drug education business, uh, did that for a year and then closed that down with a break even. And I had read, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting uh, real estate. And uh, my friend Gary was doing tax lien foreclosures and this would have been 2001. Okay and doing tax lien foreclosures in Arizona. And we were getting properties for pennies on the dollar. You know, sometimes two, three, four thousand dollars um, we'd get into the property and they're pretty rough. And they're probably worth 25, 30 at the time. Got it. Um, and then I, I mentioned to Gary, after reading Rich Dad Porter, that you're leaving a lot of money on the table with these things. And we're walking away from these deals because the people redeem their taxes and they still may want to sell. And he said, I'm not spending 10, 20,000 for those. So then we got, I said, well, what if I do? So then I started buying properties from him picked up uh, three houses, a triplex and a duplex. And I said, well, this is fun. I want to do this full time um, on my own. And so I left Gary and ended up working with uh, Jack Martin, who's, whose dad worked for my grandfather in Minneapolis alongside my dad. And um, he grew up in Seattle. You know, they moved from Minneapolis to Seattle. And we all, you know, the two of us ended up in Phoenix and he was a general contractor. And I said, hey, we got to talking. And, and that's where the name Bakerson comes from. We're both, both of our fathers were bakers. Uh, so we're just paying homage to them. And then um, as we got into the multi or the single family, we flipped over 2000 homes and 2000 transactions and it really went well, but then there was a tapering off. So we got into multifamily flipping wholesaling multifamily. We did like 25, 26, 27 multifamily units, small to big. And we had a guy call up and says, Hey, you guys want to be partners with us on a 64 unit and 120 unit. And so we did, we formed a three-way partnership, watched 
through that process and I said, man, there's some ways we could do this on our own um, in a different way with uh, syndications and other types of uh, methods. And so we bought six properties or four more properties in, in Phoenix, a six unit, an eight unit, a 16 and a 22. And we said, this is pretty fun. Well, then the market got where we thought, hey, it's almost peaked. Margins are too small. So we looked into Tucson and we started, uh, we've done 11 projects in Tucson and we have uh, three left down there and then we're looking for to buy some more. But on the, along the way, I realized back to Phoenix, so I said, it's probably almost peaked. The margins are slim. Some of those properties have doubled since then. So um, don't use me as, a, as an economist or a prognosticator on where the market's going because I really don't know. But our margins, it just didn't work with our business model right. to stay in the Phoenix market. But now we've been looking at some deals. We're making offers again in Phoenix. Uh, we're seeing some opportunities start to trickle in. So I think we're going to see some purchases in Phoenix in the coming year. That's good. That's good. So that's a real fast, I mean, it's, yeah, quick. I went through the details, but hopefully you picked up something there that. Yeah. I, uh, there are a couple, couple of different things there. Um, you know, a lot of people who start in the multifamily generally come from the, you know, single family home, you know, business where they're doing flippings or they're doing wholesales. Now you were both, were you both doing wholesaling as well as uh, flipping, you know, meaning fixing up the property and selling, or were you just primarily just buying, fixing and then selling? No, we were, we were um, in between. I called it hoteling because we would buy the property. We would take it down. We'd buy it at the auction or REO, and we'd actually own it. And we would get rid of graffiti, board up the windows, make it city compliant so that all the notices are, you know, there's no violations. And then we'd sell it to investors or homeowners. And towards the end, it was primarily homeowners that did they wanted to fix up and get into their homes. So we were able to find a, a niche where we could um, get homeowners into these homes with private money. And then... A couple of years ago, I ran a, a whole bunch of numbers to see how many people still own their property. And it was around 70% of the people we sold to still owned it wow. you know, uh, near, nearly 10 years later or six years later. So it's pretty exciting to see um, them. because that, So that's where we're really focused on the, the homeowner as opposed to the investor. Now, we sold a lot to investors too over the years, but yeah, um, we really like to take care of the homeowners and, and get them. But then Dodd Frank shut that down because we couldn't do. We were, what we do is we'd create seller carrybacks and then sell the note to investors on the open market. It was an unregulated um, industry, and there was nothing wrong. You know, we didn't we didn't get any fees for the note. We just created the note and sold it at face value, and we made money on the house. We made sure we were very specific that we weren't brokers, we weren't lenders, right. we were merely property owners. But that got shut down with the Dodd Frank bill. It said you can only do up to six seller carrybacks. So we started. So we worked with a broker lender. And then she charged fees and this, the cost of purchase actually went up for our buyers, which was unfortunate that Dodd-Frank did not have the foresight to see that houses under, with mortgages under 50,000 are really going to be hard to fund because banks, won't, banks at that point were on 50,000 minimum and our houses were selling for 50 and they bring in 10%. You know, it's just, it, it was unfortunate. But that, now that, of course, those prices, those properties have tripled since then. That was in yeah. 2000. I would assume so. So question with all of the, the wholesaling and flipping, because you went on to do some things, you know, from a multifamily perspective, which I'll get to in a second. Um, do you think it's best for an investor to start in single family or can they go over into multifamily? Because I think the first, first couple of ones that you, you actually received were, uh, was a duplex and a triplex. I mean, what, a, you know, should, should someone go right into multifamily or should they start with single family homes? 
You know, I'm not one to um, to give advice, but I certainly have my opinion that the, the way I did it is probably not the best way in the sense that um, there was a lot of a uh, lot of growth. Cur the growth curve was continues like every two and a half, three years. We have to have another growth because the way we did it, that would dry up. So we're, we're always projecting where we can go. But I believe if somebody could get right into multifamily with the right team, there's nothing wrong with going straight to multifamily. But I would I would recommend Again, it's an opinion, not advice, because advice comes with too much responsibility. But got it. <laughs> but that that they would uh, they'd form a team of somebody that has experience, because the lenders are are going to want that. They're going to want that experience. Um, but I I know a lot of people have gone from single family to multifamily. Mm -hmm. However, it is a different deal because you go to the bank for single family up to a fourplex. You can go to a bank and get a, a regular um, homeowner style mortgage. Yep. Whereas you get into five units and up and it's commercial. So it's a whole, it's actually a whole different baby. So if you start a single family or not, I don't think one or the other is the advantage. Um, knowing how to run numbers and knowing how to project uh, where, it, where it's going. When I first got introduced to multifamily, I was like, this is mind blowing. How could anybody do this? Got and then after, after our first deal walking through, I said, okay, it's not as difficult as I thought. 120 units is basically 120 houses on one parcel, you know, you just, you just look at it that way. Okay, I, I can do that. I can break it Hopefully down that way. One roof, one roof, not, not, not 120 roofs. Well, I don't know that the 120 unit we had was uh, 34 fourplexes on 10 acres. So it was a, it was so quite a lot the of deal. But, but yeah, so that I, I wouldn't, um, if someone get rated right into multifamily, if that's where they want to go, I, I jump right into it. Just make sure you have the right team and you have somebody on staff that, or somebody on your team that is, uh, has the experience to get the best financing you can. Got it. Now you mentioned that there was some wholesaling of multifamily, and uh, what? How many? How many units were you guys wholesaling when you were wholesaling multifamily? And and what is wholesaling multifamily? That may be a niche for somebody out there. Well, we'd buy the property, um, you know, get under, get it in escrow, and we would flip the contract. And I think we did, like I said, is twenty six or twenty seven um, different multifamily properties. And how many uh, units? Was, on yeah, one was 40, 50 units. There's a 250 space mobile home park. There was a, a motel. I don't remember how many units that was. A motel in Tempe that we flipped that was they wanted to use turn into apartments. Um, but I'm guessing they were mostly in the 25 to 40 range. I'm, you know, I'm searching my recollection. It's been a while ago. So that was back in 2012. But yeah, the largest one was the 250 space mobile home park. Wow. Okay. And you mentioned that, you know, you, the margins in Phoenix at one time were not exactly what you wanted to move down to uh, Tucson. Um, and you were kind of, you know, doing a lot of in and outs. And so, you know, did you, did you hold on to a lot of properties? It sounded like you, you sold a lot more than what you held on to. Yeah, we actually didn't, all of them were on the, you know, 18 to 36 month plan. Okay. So we would, we would get in reposition, sell and do the next project. So we went from the wholesaling, which our average hold on a house was 52 days. Our average hold on a apartment building is you know, closer to 25, 26 months. Wow. So it, it's a similar process, but now we're, there's one property we picked up um, in Tucson that's going to be a legacy. We're going to hold that one indefinitely. Um, no, no sale date really in, in mind yet. Um, so we're, we're getting into the, what I would call legacy ownership and I'd like to buy all of our properties without the intent to sell. The selling process to me is not near as exciting as the buy. The buy is really fun. That's where we really make the money. You make good decisions on the sale. Um, you know, we stick our, we dig our heels in. This is what we're willing to do. 
and there's always people wanting a retrade, a credit, or something on the back end. And it's just, we don't give in on that, but it just gets annoying and tiresome. And it's a big, it's a mind suck, as I call it, that it just takes up a lot of energy. And I thought, you know, what if we never sell? And if we do sell, it's to a performing operator that knows what he's getting and it's not going to, um, because we're still on performing assets. And so, we, so at this point, I think we're going to hold them. Um, anything we look at, we're, how can we hold it indefinitely? So when you're holding it indefinitely, you're getting a five-year, 10-year mortgage, amortized over 30, and then are you going to refinance out or just refinance, keep refinancing, if you will, moving forward? Well, the one that we're looking at now is we'll probably get, uh, we're going to get an agency debt on it here this year. Um, but we'll replace that. Our goal is to replace that with HUD financing. The challenge with HUD financing, it takes anywhere from nine months to a year to get your first deal through HUD. But that has a 40-year amortization and a 40-year, and it's, there's no um, there's no call, so you can hold it all the way 40 years, and you can re, you can recast the loan. You know, if you want to get take some capital out, you can prove that the value has gone up. You can recast the loan with HUD and process it and get some more capital out. So we're we're going to move that direction um, with our financing, so that then we, then it's and hopefully by then we've got all the investor capital or, or a lot of it out. You know, once we Take, go into HUD or the recasting of that loan. We get all their money out so that the investors can stay in the game with zero money left in the in the deal. No principal. They can move that principal potentially on to another property with you guys. You know? Well, that would be the hope. But if they have some other investment they want to do, they're still compounding their return, whether they invest in something else or with us. The same dollar is working twice as hard. And that's really where we want to go um, with our investors. So then with the, the HUD financing, I, and again, I have, I'm ignorant in this area, you know, versus the agency debt. Generally, agency debt, you're getting, you know, a Fannie or Freddie loan, you're holding on to it, you know, you get a five-year, you know, balloon at the end of five years or you refinance or you hold on to it for 10 years and at the end. But with HUD, you're saying it's a 40-year loan. I think, that is that where some of the affordable housing type uh, financing it comes into play or... Um, there are some covenants as to rents and things of that sort for having it that long. What What are some of no, the, the drawbacks? No, the HUD, the HUD financing has no limitations such as that. The drawback is it takes, once you get in their system, you do your second and third loan, it's still a six month process for when you start it till they fund it. They don't fund it in 90 days or 60 days or 45 days. That's just not happening. Yeah. With agency debt, so you, you don't use HUD for, for a purchase because there's not a seller that's going to say, you know what? Yeah. Take a year to buy this property. That's fine. I don't know any sellers. Right, that no. do that. Yeah. So they it's not used for purchase. It's used for right. hold. Yeah. And it's, it's more heavily on the asset based lending than the operator base. So it's, it's, they want a lot of details and they want to see the track record continue. Sending them T12s is a good start, but they're going to want, they get week or monthly reports. You know, they're going to ask you throughout the process. Okay. We need updated financial, we need updated rent rolling up. And then they analyze and they ask you a question that, okay, now I've seen this shift here. What, what happened there and what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make it? So they come in more as a partner mentality than a lender mentality. And that's why they're willing to hold it for so long. Got it. Okay. That's, um, that's different. I've never heard of the, the, that approach in terms of legacy. I've, I've heard people say, well, we're going to keep it forever. But uh, my assumption was always that we're going to you know, refinance at some point in time. But that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Well, it's a safer, it's a safer investment. The reason, the biggest plus to that, that loan is, is in, like if you have a five-year call, 
we might be in the middle of a valley in our market cycles because we're going to have cycles. There's always going to be cycles. Our fiat currency requires us to have cycles for it to stay alive. Um, that's a whole other topic. We could talk about the, how money works. But the, um, with HUD, you don't have that five-year call. So it, it, let's say five years. If you have a 10-year note, that's safer because some, maybe in year seven, you might say, you know what? I see some things on the horizon. Let us, let's, get it, let's, let's redo this loan. Let's get a supplemental. Let's extend this to um, another 10 years out. And you can do that with agency. Where with HUD, yeah. you don't have to worry about that. You can recast, but if the market's soft, you wait. It, but they're not going to call your note. And that's what's really exciting for this, for the investors that are in the deal with us. They know there's not this, this sunset in five years or seven years or 10 years that they have to be worried about. They know the loan's going to be there um, indefinitely or for the life of the project. And right now, to get into something that's agency, given the rates where they are right now, that's a good thing. You know, maybe in the future, when rates rebound and go back up, you know, having a HUD loan, you know, may not necessarily be as profitable because again, the rates will be a lot higher. And as we have yeah. cycles, if you're in it for 40 years, you may hit that cycle where, you know, you get a dip in rate, but you're at 8%, let's just say, I'm just throwing out a number. Um, you know, or right now, I think we're in about the threes and the four percents in terms of uh, what people are getting on mortgages right now. Um, for, you know, 30-year amateur, this is the agency, 30-year amateurization, holding on to it for five or, or 10 years. And um, a couple months ago, I'm not sure if they're still doing it now. Uh, I think it is, but it's lo a little bit more limited. People were getting interest only for the first two or three years. It allow you to be able to get, you know, take some of that cash flow and be able to do CapEx and do return, uh, you know, investment back to your investors. But I want to shift. Yeah. And you can get five-year five -year IO as well. Up to five years interest only. So, okay. So shifting gears. I interrupted, yeah, I interrupted no. you. That's pretty good. I, I've got to go do some more research on that. One of the things that you mentioned is, you know, hey, you don't have to start out in single family. If you were interested, and again, it's more or less not advice, but an opinion. If you partnered yourself with a group that had experience, because a banker is going to want to see that if we're going to get to a deal and you really could get involved in multifamily um, just starting out. So that's a good idea. But I guess I want to pivot now a little bit more to, you know, how you all run your business. I mean, what I thought I heard, you know, in our first preliminary conversation is your approach to how you deal with tenants. You, you mentioned uh, in this conversation that you spent a lot more time working with people who were buying their home long term and 70% of the people kept it. What, you know, makes the way that you all operate your business, you know, unique? Well, when we were selling houses to homeowners, we walked them through the process. We walked them through title. Many of them didn't understand the process. Um, and so we weren't realtors. We were just selling the house direct to owners. And they really liked how we treated them. And they, we, if there was questions, we didn't question, we didn't, um, you know, make them look poor, look bad. We just said, hey, we got to walk through, we'll walk you through the process. And I found out that working with the, ultimate homeowner was, was real rewarding. And then when we got into the, the multifamily, I realized, or, or before that, so I noticed a lot of investors would treat their buyers really, really poor. And I thought, you know, you're making some good money, at least show some respect to your buyers. They are actually your customer. So when I got into multifamily, I said, who is your customer? And people say, oh, it's your investor. And investor is your partner. And you want to take care of them, you want to pay them. And then but who brings the money in? Without residents, you have no income. Just like mm -hmm. if you have a store, 
without without customers, without people coming in to buy something from you, that you have no income. You can have the best investors behind your store in the world, but if you have no goods going out the door, you're not making any money. So what we offer is is a place to live. And our customer, in my mind, is the resident. And okay. if you if you just look at it, like in Tucson for a, uh, let's say a one bedroom apartment, you're renting it for $700 a month uh, for five years, it's $42,000 a year. Or $42,000 in, in five years, they're a $42,000 customer. And I think, you know, if we can keep somebody for five years, that's pretty good. Well, if it's a $1,400 resident in a nicer neighborhood, that's an $84,000 customer. And I was just shocked at how many, how many landlords, how many property owners really don't care about the resident. They don't treat them with dignity or respect. And they, they feel like, you know, they could push them around and because they're the owner. Well, to me, it, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic scale you're at. Everybody's human. Treat them with dignity. And, right. and that's where the dignity hasn't been in C-class. And we feel we bring that in. And the, the residents do enjoy what we've, we've done. And we've got many instances where they've thanked us for how we've changed communities and made it safer and cleaner for them. So that yeah. is our focus. So, so talk to us about some of those systems and those things that you do in order to, you know, display dignity without just saying dignity, but you, you're turning those things around. How, what, what do you all do in terms of your systems or, or how you approach things? Well, like, um, listen, the biggest thing you can do is listen to the residents. What do they want? And it was uh, one of the first buildings we bought was a 64 unit. And there was an elderly lady struggling to go up the stairs with her bag. And I, uh, I, I grabbed it and ran up the stairs and asked her if she lived there. And she said that she did. And I asked, do you like it here? She said, yeah, but I'd like to be on first floor. I'm a widow. Um, she was elderly. And I said, so then I talked to the property manager and said, hey, can you get her onto the first floor? And he said, sure, we can do that. So we just purchased the property. Well, then... I was at the property later and she, she, I heard somebody holler, you know, kind of hollering for me, but she didn't know my name, but she says, hello, sir. And I look, and it was this woman. She says, thank you so much. So I went from a one bedroom in a studio. My rent um, went down, but I got a brand new unit and it's on the ground floor. Thank you. And I said, you know, that's, that's really what we want to pass on to our property managers that if, if there's somebody that doesn't want to take the stairs, put them on first floor. We got plenty of first floor units. Um, and then another one is, uh, when we're cleaning up the properties, we pick sometimes some really bright and vibrant colors, uh, you know, grays and orange, bright orange. And people say, why do you do that? I said, just to show that there's a new, new person here, a new owner and somebody that when you're willing to do that, it draws attention, you better take care of it. If you draw attention to that property and you have, we have weeds that are three, three feet high and unkempt uh, shrubbery, that's bad. So it forces you to say, hey, if we're gonna do this, people are gonna look, if they're gonna look, it better look nice. And when I was there, one of the guys said that he didn't like the color, but then a little bit later, he says, hey, he said, hollers at me across the courtyard, and so I'm walking over to him, and he's another you know, tall guy, and he was, um, he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry what I said about this property before, that you, you guys have done a great, great job, I love it, thank you so much, he says, the, the crime activity has gone down, and I feel really safe here, and I said, you know, that was really cool, that was here, good to hear that, um, and it's, there's story after story of that, so you listen to what they want, but the biggest thing is our mission is creating communities which are safe, functional, durable, and clean. And okay. Pueblo Springs, we purchased, and the, the police department in the area said, why would you ever buy this property? It's high crime. Just a few short months later, they, they, talked to the, they didn't talk to us directly, but talked to the property management company and said, man, whatever you guys are doing, the 911 calls have just plummeted. The activity here has gone down. The drug use has, has plummeted. That We really like what you're doing. We raise the bar for our residents as well as ourselves that we're not going to put up with 
this type of activity. And sometimes when we go in there, you know, I'm tall and Ben's tall and we go walking in and when we'll carry, you know, what we'll be carrying on our hip and people see that and they're, you know, they pause, but that's how when we first go in, sometimes you have to do that, but we don't always do that. Most times we go in without anything, but. So are you, uh, are you putting in the, uh, what I call the blue light specials, cameras and LED lights and things of that sort to reduce the crime or what, what are things that you're doing to say reduce crime in some of those, uh, those units or those uh, apartments? Well, the, um, some of the simplest things are things that are advised by uh, crime-free multi-housing of Arizona. And the first thing is it's either, it's either um, it's hip low or shoulder high. So the bushes, the bushes should be uh, hip, there should be cut no, no taller than your hips and your, the trees should be cut no lower or no left no lower than your shoulder. So there's always, there's no place, there's less places to hide, right? Got it. So, so you, you said that, that organization was crime-free multifamily of Arizona? Multi-housing. 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 Yep. Got it. And it's, um, and it's a, it's a program that I've been through three times, twice in Phoenix and once in Tucson. Uh, we are crime-free certified. Our property managers, we ask them to go through it. They're third party. But that's one thing. The other thing is um, a lot of what they call, is, they call them uh, shaken breaks. They're those lollipop style lights that people have. They have the pedestal with the bulb. They call those shaken breaks because people just go up and shake them and the lights go out and then they do their drugs or whatever else. We got rid of those and we put LEDs. We put them up high and we put them in, in spots that they're, they're difficult to break. Um, you know, the security, the old security bulbs, they would just you know, shoot them with a BB gun or throw a rock at them and, and make these dark corners. Well, LEDs are very, very durable from that and they can withstand some of that. So that's, we've done that as well. Um, fencing off the area, limiting in, entry and exit points is another thing you do. So people, there's less walkthrough traffic. They got to stay on the road, less likely to be a problem. And then loitering. That's, if you see people loitering, I come up and ask, hey, do you live here? And they say, well, no, but my friend does. I say, okay, where's your friend? Oh, he's not home. Okay, why don't you come back when he's home? And, and they leave. Right. So uh, just things like that you need to really do on a regular basis. Got it. My apologies. My phone is going off here. thought it was on mute. Um, so there was another question that I had. You mentioned your property managers, and I was going to wonder, are you managing any of your properties at all, or are you just you know, outsourcing the management of that? No, we do all third-party property managers, and the reason the reason being is um, we did have a we did have set up for a short time our own property management company, and when when we did that, we found out that it was just there's enough good property managers that you can work with, right. and they already have systems in place, and so we ended up working with two different we have two different property management companies we use in in Tucson, and there's two other ones we've used in Phoenix, um, so yeah, they're. Uh, we do work closely with them. And what we did differently, what I, what I recommend to individuals, some have quarterly reports, some have monthly reports. We get weekly reports from our property managers. And at first there's low resistance, but then we get it. What we want is what's the occupancy? What is the pre-leased? What is the income? What are the expenses week after week after week? And um, Nate, who manages that for Bakerson, he can, get, he can go through those really fast and deliver them to our Monday morning meeting every Monday. Here's the update. Here's how many units are occupied. Here's how many are pre-leased. Here's what our expenses were. And here's what our income is for those properties. And he can, he can go through that pretty quick. But so weekly then, reports are, are advised because you keep a better eye on, on trends. So then question, um, are you, do you have some sort of um, a system that you're using, say Yardy or whatever, in order to, to get those reports from all, say, all four of your property management companies or... Are you just getting those via PDFs or 
how, how do you kind of, you know, well, I would assume with, you know, a couple hundred properties uh, or units that you're managing that you, in four different property management companies possibly, you know, that you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you, everybody's on a different system or something. Yeah, the, the reports, the Yardi matrix we like the best and App, Appfolio is another one that people use. Typically those two, that's where we get our monthly and quarterly, quarterly reports and Greg gets those. Um, he's our, our asset manager. And then, but the weekly reports are done through email. Just here's an updated email. Here's what we have. And we can verify that. Um, we, can, we can dial in like Appfolio. We could sign in ourselves and generate those reports. But we also like to talk to them. You know, what have you pre-leased? What's the activity? How many people have walked through the units? And at first it sounds like it's overwhelming, but if you do, I have a saying that I've adopted in our, in our company, just a little bit every day. So if you do a little bit on property management every day, all of a sudden the week, the week goes by and you say, well, I got a lot done. Where if you put it all off till Friday, it feels like you haven't got much done. And the example I like to use is if you're into exercising and you say, I'm gonna exercise a half hour a day, and you say, I'm so busy, I'm just gonna do five hours on Sunday. It's not the same. You're not gonna have the same results. You do a little bit every day, you're better off in the long term. So that's how, that's how I'm, um, working with our property managers and our, our staff. That's excellent. That's excellent. I, I know that some property management uh, teams um, that I've talked to before, you know, what you're asking and, you know, what you've asked, you know, what you're doing and implementing, they would say it's probably a little bit uh, overwhelming. And um, <laughs> they probably would uh, not want to want to work with someone who was uh, putting that out there. But it seems like you've already you know, in your, in your um, conversations with these property managers have let them know this is what your expectation is. And obviously this is, is giving you some good results because, you know, you're, you've done a lot. So right now, how many units do you guys have under management and where would you like to be? Well, we're, we're, uh, we're in the selling mode because of the market and the shift in our, in our strategy. So a year ago we had um, over, over nearly 500 and we have, uh, 90, 75, 165, about uh, 175. So it's shrunk way down. We have a 75 unit that's in, in escrow to sell. And then the condo complex that we had, we used to have 39 units. I think we're down to nine. Those are almost gone. So the 90 unit we're keeping, but we're looking at a 220 unit, a 45 unit, um, a 65 unit. So we're looking at multiple properties right now that um, to build that back up. But it, it, it just goes ebbs and waves. So like I said, a year ago, we were at, uh, 444 units plus condos, 39 condos, and now we're you know, selling. Well, it's been a good time to sell and recapture some of the some of the capital. But now going forward, it'll be legacy. And and our goal is um, in the in the next few years to get to 1,500 units under management. Wow. Um, and and with uh, our my hope is to be at no more than 65% leveraged loan to value. Wow. Um, we keep it lower than that if we can for safety because the market's going to go soft. And I want to make sure that we're protected, our investors are protected, and the community is still running with um, with a shifting market. So I want to be very cautious going into the next uh, you know three two to three years because I, I believe we will see a dip. So how can someone reach out and talk with you a little bit more about uh, maybe investing from a legacy perspective? Uh, and or is there anything else that you need that the uh, the community may be able to provide? Well, our, uh, our biggest strength is finding the assets, underwriting the assets, and really putting them into play. And once we own them, we have a, we're very efficient at making that change. Our, our biggest gap, I don't call it a weakness, I call it a gap, is, our, um, is capital, is getting enough capital in fast enough, and then the managing of that, 
of the investors from there. And we've implemented some new things that are making some great progress. But if there's people that say, hey, I'd like to partner, I like what you guys are talking about, by all means, call me. Or even if you have a question on what I meant by anything that we've shared, um, I'm willing. I'm an open book on that. Uh, you know, there's, there's, we're living in the information age. Let's, let's share as much information and as little disinformation as we can regarding multifamily. There you go. And so you can go to our website, bakerson.com, B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. Email bruce at bakerson.com. Or you could call or text me on my cell, 520-808-9111. And I share that with the expectation that somebody will call. So please, if you have any questions or text, please do. Well, you know, one of the things that I found in uh, talking with operators like yourself who've been in the business for a while and they're so open, uh, they really are uh, open to, to having a conversation. And Bruce, I want to say thank you to you and your team. Um, we've had several conversations over this past month or so, and uh, you've been willing to share. And we've, uh, we've had some great dialogue. And uh, we hope to, to work with you and partner with you moving forward. And uh, anybody that's out there, again, what you see is what you get. He is definitely the authentic one to want to, uh, to work with you. So please feel free to reach out to Bruce. Bruce, again, thank you for your time. And uh, I know we'll be talking very soon, all right? Thank you so much. And hopefully there's a golden nugget that somebody could pick up and do something with. So thank you. I'm sure there's tons. Take care. All right, we'll see ya.